Well, good morning, church. Uh, please go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13. God willing, we're going to be uh, covering six plus chapters of the Bible today, and all God's people said. <laughs> That's over 200 verses, some 6,400 words, and all added up, that comes to about 0.8% of the Bible all today. <laughs> and we need to get after it. Uh, as we enter in, uh, to the text this morning. We're going to encounter some of the darkest chapters uh, of the Bible. Uh, so it's going to be heavy. It's going to be a lot of heavy, but I promise uh, we're going to finish with some hope uh, this morning. So hang with me, okay? Now, I'd like for us to begin by actually uh, rereading uh, a passage in chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, there's some information in that that we need to have on the forefront of our thinking as we enter into our passage uh, today. Uh, so if you would, flip back a chapter to chapter 12, and um, uh, verse 10 is where we're going to start there. Uh, this is Nathan confronting David on behalf of the Lord and speaking on behalf of the Lord uh, of the consequences that are going to happen to David as the result of his sin against Bathsheba and again against Uriah. And the word of the Lord says here, now therefore the sword, David, shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Take note of that, friends. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And today's passage uh, vividly shows that what the Lord promised would happen to David here in chapter 12 happens. I mean, we have rape and murder, revenge, exile, deception, conspiracy, insurrection, spying, overthrowing, debauchery, cursing, suicide, civil war, humiliation, death, grief, on and on in short. It's royal family chaos. It's an absolute bedlam in the house of David. And here in chapter uh, 13 of 2 Samuel, we're actually gonna read the, the first scene in its entirety uh, because uh, everything that happens, happens as this, out of this, this being the seminal event that kicks off everything. It's hard, it's heavy. So here we go. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, that's David's third oldest son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, uh, Amnon is David's firstborn, his eldest, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. 
So Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Verse 7. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him, he took hold of her and he said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. And as for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this thing out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying as loud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. How kind. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house and when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry, but Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Make no mistake, what happened here to Tamar is just sick. It's evil. And often... Physical and sexual abuse come from people we trust. Which just compounds the pain and the trauma. I mean, if we, if we can't trust our family, then who can we trust? Know this. Tamar did nothing wrong. The sin that was committed here was committed against her by Amnon. And as a dad with daughters, I ache for Tamar. And we would have expected a similar response from her dad, David. But David doesn't do anything. 
except get angry. Understand the Mosaic law covered evils like this. They had laws that could deal with this kind of sin, but they didn't follow it. I just can't fathom this lack of response to Amnon's sin. Truthfully speaking, these kinds of violations and lack of just responses are frequent today as well. I know many of you have suffered evils like this in your past. And if something like this has happened to you, my heart aches for you as well. God knows. God sees you. God loves you. And your heavenly father is a safe place so you can cling to him and hope. The text uh, continues. Two years passed. And Absalom uh, plots his revenge. And at the right time, he tricks David, his father, into letting all the sons come out for a feast. And when they do, he orders his servants to murder Amnon. And he spares the other sons who go away weeping back to their father, David. But Absalom himself flees northeast to the country of Geshur, where King Talmai, who is his grandfather... Uh, reigns and there Absalom lives in exile for three years. And I just want to make note before we start to pick up in speed here, because we might be uh, thinking that Absalom had some sort of a justified homicide here for the evil that Amnon had committed. But friends, the Bible doesn't give us that luxury. And God says that vengeance belongs to him. Absalom was not justified in murdering Amnon. God is the perfect avenger. And he will bring perfect justice to all those in sin. And if something similar has happened to you, take encouragement in knowing that God will bring vengeance and make every right or wrong right. And that brings us to um, chapter 14. And after three years, Joab, David's uh, top general, decides to help Absalom and David reunite. How thoughtful of him. So he devises this plan to, to use a, a wise woman to go into the court of David to, to tell him a, a, a parable. And, and David is, is fooled by this woman's parable. He's backed into a corner, uh, primarily because of, of what he says. And he has no other choice but to grant Absalom refuge in Jerusalem. I have to admit, chapter 14 is a fascinating text. I probably spent more time studying it, trying to understand what in the world is going on here. We don't have time to delve into it. 
Suffice it to say this, Absalom should indeed have been brought back to Jerusalem for trial, conviction, and the death penalty, according to Jewish law. But he wasn't. And David allowed Absalom to return to Jerusalem to live separately from the palace. And then we get on towards the end of chapter 14, and we, we note a, a parenthetical pause here, and I want for us to pick up the text here. Um, in verse 25, this is what it says. Now, in all Israel, there was no one uh, so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. It's about five pounds. There was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, and she was a, a beautiful a woman. So Absalom's back in, in Jerusalem, and we're told that he's this ruggedly handsome, suave, charming, murderous bad boy who has a beautiful head of hair. So not Fabio. Not Jared Leto, but more like uh, Jason Momoa comes to mind with this guy. So why the mention of Absalom's appearance here? Well, recall from our, our first Samuel series earlier this year, if you were here for that, that we, we learned that Israel has a weak spot for men who look like the pagan nation's kings. Israel always seemed to be infatuated with just good-looking leaders. Charisma over character. Take Saul. Even the prophet Samuel wanted to uh, anoint Eliab, David's brother, because of his good looks. And this is important because of what happens next, friends. And Absalom's hair that's mentioned here also prepares us for something that's going to take place a little bit later in the story when we get there. Then in, in verse 28, the story picks back up again. Two more years go by, and eventually David and Absalom uh, meet together. But that's only after Absalom burns Joab's barley field to coerce and manipulate him into facilitating the meeting. I hope, I hope you can begin to see that this guy, Absalom, was not a very good guy. In fact, in the Hebrew, his name is Avshalom, which ironically is father of peace. Let's pick up here in verse uh, 1 of chapter 15. So after all of this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom uh, used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him saying, hey, psst, come here. From what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in, in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right. But, oh man, there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Oh, shucks. It's in the Hebrew. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom 
did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This chapter begins with Absalom getting a chariot and horses and 50 mighty men to run with him and protect him. And he also began sitting at the, date, at the gate, one of the city gates, and, and judging the, the people's disputes. And the text is making it clear here that he is starting to act like a king. And you add to that, with his words, he weakened David's position in the eyes of the people. He just told them what they wanted to hear. He was their yes man. You could not go wrong in the court of Absalom. And he made them believe the king doesn't care for them. And in this manipulative, cunning, charming way, Absalom stole the hearts of the people that were not given to him. The text goes on and continues here. At the end of four more years, Absalom was, was now ready for the coup. The pieces were all aligned on the chessboard. Now it's time to spring into action. So he convinces David to let him go uh, to Hebron to worship the Lord. And then once again, David is, is fooled by Absalom. And lets him do it. And Absalom then sends a secret message to all the 12 tribes of Israel saying, hey, now it's time to declare me king in Hebron. And the text even says that uh, Ahithophel, David's top advisor, was a part of the conspiracy. And in verse 13, uh, David gets word and finally realizes Absalom's plan, but it's too late. So he and his, his household have to, to flee Jerusalem for their lives and they head east into the, the wilderness toward the Jordan River. And there's a, a remnant of David's, David's mighty men who follow him. And in verse 16 here, it gives us a good piece of information that comes in handy later. And the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. Make note of that. And along the way, we're also told that the entire tribe of Levi, the, the priesthood of Levites, also come and, and show their loyalty to King David. They bring the Ark of the Covenant with them. And now look at what, what David says to them here in, in verse 25 of chapter 15. Then the king said to Zadok, who is uh, one of the priests, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. And let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if the Lord says, I have no pleasure in you, David, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. David instructs the, the priests to take the, the ark of God back to Jerusalem. And he says, if the Lord wills it, I'll see it again. But if not, my life is in the Lord's hands. Hey, don't miss this. David is thinking rightly here. There's no direct word from God, at least we're not given that, but David recognizes rightly God's sovereign control over what's happening. Here's the cool thing with that. He's submitting to it. This isn't fatalism. This is submission. God, here I am. Do with me as you please. And I got to ask the question, how many of us could say the same thing about our troubles? Uh, 
Someone also uh, tells David that uh, Ahithophel, in verse 31, uh, Ahithophel has betrayed him. And, and then David prays and he says, Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And the Lord immediately begins to answer that prayer. Because on the heels of that amen from David, David's longtime friend, Hushai, another uh, member of, of, of the uh, uh, a group of advisors that he has, a well-trusted uh, man and a good friend, shows up and pays homage to David and says, I'm with you, bro. And David says, hey, Hushai, go back to Jerusalem and get in good with Absalom. Be a spy for me. And here's the reason why. So that you can defeat the council of Ahithophel. That brings us to chapter 16. In verses 1 uh, uh, through 14, we're given two vignettes, two uh, small sub-stories back-to-back involving two separate members of the house of Saul. And they're interacting with David in in harmful, disrespectful, uh, deceptive ways. It's interesting that the author puts these two stories next to each other, uh, like the way he does. Both are from the house of Saul. And I think it shows us that even in Saul's death, the house of Saul is still in opposition to the house of David. Then we go back to Absalom here in verse 15. And this is what it says. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with them. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Verse 20, then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel, what shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hand of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, that would be the roof of the palace. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. You just gotta pause and go, what in the world? This is like an X-rated thing that he does so that all Israel can see what he's doing and his adultery. This is wicked. It's also illegal According to Jewish law, sleeping with your father's wife, which is what a a concubine was, is a little bit lesser wife in in that society, hierarchy of things. It was punishable by death. We also have to take note here, by the way, that this is exactly what God said would happen to David. David. all the way back in chapter 12, what we read at the beginning. And as a consequence for for David's sin in secret that brought personal shame, 
Now Absalom sins publicly bringing national shame to David. This happened years after David committed the sin. And he's still feeling the consequences of it. Sometimes our sins, and in my experience as a pastor, sexual sins especially, have long-term consequences. That brings us to chapter 17. You still with me? Okay. Um, There is no pause or break in the narrative here, like the chapter break that you see here in in yours, in the original. It just keeps right on going. And so additionally, what we see here uh, is Ahithophel counsels Absalom to let him immediately take 12,000 men to attack David by by surprise. He's like, hey, hey, Absalom, let me grab 12,000 men and let me uh, mobilize them and get after them. Let's do a quick hit against David. We'll spare all, everyone else in David's camp, but we'll kill David. And by doing that, we'll unite the whole kingdom under you, King Absalom. But then Hushai is there. And Hushai is like, no, this time that's not good counsel. Instead, David what, or Absalom, what you should do is you should mobilize the entire army of Israel and you yourself be their leader and go and attack David and wipe them all out. Not just David, but his entire camp. That's what you should do. And so we're left with this question of, so what counsel is Absalom going to take? We'll look here at chapter 17, verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Now, now catch this, okay? No one is speaking here. This is the author telling us this. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that, circle that, so that the Lord might bring harm, I think NIV's better with disaster, bring disaster upon Absalom. See, Absalom and the elders, uh, they liked Hushai's counsel better. Why? Because the, the text tells us, because the Lord had ordained, he, he commanded to defeat the good counsel of Hithophel precisely because he wanted to bring disaster upon Absalom. You see, friends, God is all but silent with words in our story. But God's not passively standing back, just letting it all happen and play out. He's actively, sovereignly commanding what's going on to the very detail. And he's ordered the disaster come upon Absalom. This demonstrates that that even in our darkest hours, when all hope seems lost, that God is sovereignly commanding the events going on in our lives and around us. And what happens, happens because God commands it to happen, not because of luck, not because of fate but because of God. That means God's near, even when we don't see him or feel him. So then uh, Hushai, 
secretly gets word to David so that he's prepared for what's next. And, and David then crosses the, the Jordan River and pitches his camp in a, in, a, in a town called Mahanaim. And Absalom, after mobilizing the troops, eventually, it takes a while to mobilize that many uh, men uh, in the army, by the way. So a lot of time passes, but eventually Absalom uh, crosses over the Jordan into Gilead, which is just north of where David is, and the whole Israelite army is with him. So the stage is set for civil war. I'll just note here in verse 23, it tells us, the text tells us that when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he went home, set his house in order, and hanged himself. God answered David's prayer and brought Ahithophel to foolishness. Now chapter 18, we see that uh, David organizes his men into an army, properly divided up into three uh, divisions. And his only order is, spare my son Absalom. So let's see what happens. Verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country and the, the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Think about that. Oh, it's almost like even creation itself was against Absalom. Verse nine. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule and the, the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak and his head caught fast in the oak and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Don't you hate it when that happens? <laughs> and a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. The man said to Joab, But even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king himself commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, those were two other generals, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. And Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand, those are spears, and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. It's a pretty humiliating way to die, isn't it? If there's ever a reason not to have uh, long hair but be a bald man, that's a good one. <laughs> There's hope for us, Pastor Nate. And God brought disaster upon Absalom like he said he would. We have to understand that Absalom revolted against the Lord's anointed, which was tantamount to revolting against the Lord himself. And God said, you're done. And the rest of this chapter and 
beginning of chapter 19, uh, uh, talks about uh, the details around David finding out about Absalom's death and his response. He doesn't respond uh, in joy over the victory, uh, but instead he, he mourns the loss of his son. And lastly, uh, Joab comes to David and basically says, suck it up, buttercup. Your people need you. Get out there and be the king that they need and encourage them. So David does. And thus ends the saga of Absalom's life. So question. You may be asking yourself this as well. What in the world do we do with a mess of a story like this? And it's a, a story in which we only get a, a few hints of what the Lord is up to and no direct words from the Lord. Well, let me uh, propose or suggest two questions. First question, what does this story reveal about us as people? Second question, what does this story reveal about God? So the first uh, question, what it reveals about us. Let me sum it up this way. Our depravity brings calamity to humanity. You see, our sins produce carnage and chaos to those around us. And they're ever-present reminders of our need for a Savior King. So the story reveals that we are sinful. Just like all the characters in this story that we've encountered, we have rebellious hearts. We lust for pleasure, and so we commit adultery in our hearts. We quarrel and we fight. We get angry with each other, and so we, we commit murder in our hearts. Those are the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. We're greedy for power and honor, and we're glory thieves. We, we want to take from God what only belongs to him. This also reveals that we are unfaithful. David and his, his family were not faithful to the covenant that God made with him in, in them in 2 Samuel 7. And just like them, we're covenant breakers as well. And it shows we need someone to keep perfect covenant with God on our behalf. Take a guess who that is. But third, the story also reveals that we are hopeful. We're hopeful, friends. Well, while fleeing Jerusalem, uh, David said this. I want to go back to this. Uh, chapter 15, verse 25 David said, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both the ark and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. David's hope was in the Lord's sovereign grace and justice. And as uh, sinful and unfaithful people like David, our hope is also in the Lord's sovereign grace and justice. And that brings us to the next question. What does the story reveal about God? 
Let me summarize it this way. His sovereignty preserves his covenant loyalty with the guilty. His sovereignty preserves his covenant loyalty with the guilty. Check this out. Everywhere in the story, God's covenant with David from 2 Samuel 7 seems to us at least to be in jeopardy. But God sovereignly orchestrates the consequences of David's sin and he preserves his covenant loyalty to the messianic promise. And so we see in the story that God is justice. See, everything that God says would happen to David and his family happens in the story. But we also see that God brings disaster upon Absalom. The murderer, the deceiver, the manipulator, the adulterer. God brought justice upon Absalom. And this should encourage us. This should encourage us to recognize that all evil in this world, every piece of it that's done in private or that's done in public will have a day in court in the throne room of the Godhead. Praise the Lord for that. And God will mete out justice perfectly, better than we ever could. We also see here in the story that, that God is faithful. God is faithful. He's faithful to his covenant. See, God's covenant with, with David was never actually in jeopardy at all. God cannot, he cannot break covenant. It's contrary to his nature and he cannot do anything that's against his nature. We ought to rejoice in that. So he preserved David's dynasty, thereby preserving his plan to bring another son of David to establish the kingdom forever. Which brings us to the third truth that's revealed about God here. It's that he is redemptive. God is a redemptive God. This is so cool. There is a picture here in this story. Absalom is a son of David who hung on a tree by his head because of his own sins. Jesus Christ is a son of David who hung on a tree by his hands and his feet because of the sins of the world. Absalom brought murder, mayhem, and death. Jesus Christ brings redemption, peace, and life to all those who believe in him. And Absalom is a, is a foil for Jesus in this story. Not only that, but because of this reality, there's a story within a story. You see, David's royal family points to another royal family. And this uh, royal family was born by the Holy Spirit's arrival at Pentecost. A, a royal family consisting of people adopted by God through faith in the son of David who died on the cross for their sins. Church, that's us. It's all those redeemed in Christ. It's the church. We are God's royal family. And our son of David is the king of kings and lord of lords. 
And guess what? Our royal family is also messy sometimes too, isn't it? But unlike David's royal family mess, unlike that, we have the promise that our king is transforming our mess, our chaos into order. And Jesus Christ is slowly, methodically removing our spiritual blemishes, spots, wrinkles, as he prepares us for our presentation in glorious splendor before him on that day. That's our redemptive God, friends. And we are a royal family whose king hung on a tree for our sins. And so Lord, we thank you. We give you the glory. We give you the honor. You are the king from David's lineage that we need. You are our savior. By your work, O oh God, you are transforming us into something marvelous, into your very image. And we don't have to wallow in our sins. We can celebrate the fact that as followers of Jesus, your perfect justice, God, was, was carried out on Jesus on the cross so that none of us who place our faith in Jesus stand condemned. We stand redeemed. Praise the Lord. We're so undeserving of your sovereign grace. We deserve nothing, nothing but condemnation. And yet Jesus took that for us. And oh God, I would pray, I would pray that if there's anyone in this room or in this building right now who has not placed their faith in you, Lord, that they would not wait to get right with you, that they would grab someone and say, help me understand who this, this uh, King Jesus is. I wanna be a part of his family. Tell me how I can do that. And God, I pray for those of us who are redeemed, I pray that we would leave encouraged knowing that you are sovereignly commanding every single event right down to the minutia that's going on in our lives. And God, help us to submit to it. We love you, oh God. You are awesome. We are not. Thank you for messy stories that point to our resurrected Savior. For your glory and our joy, in Christ's name.